Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming. On ABC Radio. There was denied mobility for our people. There were denied opportunities on every aspect of life. I mean, and, and, and most of our mob were confined on heavily restricted and um, controlled reserves and missions where every aspect of decisions in your life were taken away from you. But if you were able to get an opportunity to buy some freedom through the boxing ring, well, you know, go for it. Ring Kings, a history of Aboriginal people and boxing. This is Speaking Out, I'm Jay McAllister. The Australian boxing community has been mourning the recent death of one of its greats, Hector Thompson. Born in Kempsey on the New South Wales mid-north coast, Hector grew up in the infamous Conchilla Boys' home until the age of 13. He fought for two world titles and in 2005 was inducted into the Australian Boxing Hall of Fame. His career is similar to that of many other Aboriginal men who have tried their hand at the sport, a participation dating back to the late 19th century. In 1912, Jerry Jerome became the first Indigenous Australian to win a major boxing title, defeating Charlie Godfrey to claim the middleweight championship of Australia. Tonight on Speaking Out, we explore the unique long-standing relationship between Aboriginal people and the sport of boxing. It's a hot afternoon in the Stretton Boxing Club on the outskirts of Brisbane in Queensland. One of Australia's top prospects, Cameron Hammond, is working the bag under the watchful eye of trainer Glenn Rushton. You may recognise the name. Glenn also trains former welterweight world champion Jeff Horn. A proud Aboriginal man from Moree, Cameron grew up experiencing the same hardship and discrimination felt by many other Aboriginal people in the town. It was always challenging, but especially being an Aboriginal boy, still, um, still very divided then and it is still now between uh, Aboriginals and non-Aboriginals, so always got looked at definitely as a kid and, and still now. You, know, you can't even walk into a store without getting looked at definitely, but um, I definitely found it challenging and I managed to get through all those challenges and here I am today. So. Like the other kids in Moree, Cameron was into footy, a big Melbourne Storm fan. <laughs> I actually didn't want to get into boxing, to be honest. I was 12 years old. I had a good mate by the name of Daniel. He was doing boxing at the Moree PCYC and uh, he used to go there alone. He didn't really have any friends there. And one day he asked me to go down and just do some boxing with him and just, I guess, a bit of support or have a mate there to do it with. And, uh, it took him a couple of weeks to convince me because I kept saying no. But uh, I finally said yes because he kept nagging me. So I went down and then never left. Had a couple of fights, won them, and the coach saw some potential in me and saw some talent, so I stuck with it. Cameron would fight in the amateurs for a number of years. I think it was 2004 or five in the Golden Gloves. I ended up, I was like 14 or 15, ended up stepping up in age division because there's no one in my age division. And then I ended up winning that fight. Um, being a couple of boys older than me, that were, I, th- I thought were fairly decent. And that's when I realised, like, oh, yeah, I must be half decent, must have some talent. At 22, Cameron was training hard to make the Australian boxing team for the Olympics in London. Yeah, I was doing regular trips from Moree to, uh, to Brisbane with my old coach. I came here for three days. The first day was fired 10 rounds. The second day was fired 11 rounds and the third day was fired 12 rounds. Mate, I'd never been so sore and busted up in my life after that mm-hmm. three days, but I think that specifically helped us out a lot, me and Jeff. That was late in late 2011, so we had trials coming up soon after that. So I think that helped us both prepare for that. After an impressive performance at the trials, Cameron had made the Olympic team. It was a huge moment for him and his family. 9.64, Usain Bolt is the fastest man on the planet. Joshua. And again, rousing reception from the crowd. Freedom. Freedom. The missile's just in front from Australia. It's going to be a touch. Who gets it? Adrian gets it. 
I remember just, you know, landing in London and seeing all, obviously, the Olympics signs and stuff around, and I just couldn't believe it. I was just in shock. Here I am, just like a little kid at a bloody circus or something, just my eyes are lit up and couldn't even speak to anybody, just in shock, and then obviously driving to the village and, again, seeing all these big-name athletes, and honestly, I, I can't explain it. It's just absolutely, if I could do it again tomorrow, I would. It's the best experience of my life, 100%. Today, Cameron is in his eighth year as a professional. His record stands at 19-1. and one. The last time we saw him in the ring was a victory over Frank Rojas in late 2018. After an extended period out of the ring, Cameron says he's eyeing a big fight later this year. No, I've still got the fire in the belly. Definitely, no. I've never, ever thought that I've done enough. Can't bother anymore. There's not much else to do. No, definitely not. I've still got the fire in the belly. And like I said, I just got busy in life, really, with marriage and a purchase of a new home and get a great job because obviously you can't box forever. So the fire in the belly is definitely still there, which is why I would like to be on the, the Zoo Horn undercard and, again, hopefully show the people in Australia that I've got more to give. Cameron is the latest in a long line of Aboriginal men who have made their mark on the sport of boxing determined to make a name for themselves by combining natural ability with hard work and dedication. Right to the head by Mundine. He took that right hand hard from the hunger and came back fighting. Many Sandor, Peck Thompson crowding up on him. That's it. They've signed by a knockout in the first round. Lionel Rose of Australia defending the World Bantamweight Championship. And Wally Carr gets on the bicycle, does some very smart back moving. The winner, Anthony! The count ended with Carburn still down and referee Terry Riley crowned Bracken and the fight was over. Competition's paying the price! I'm gonna knock you out! Mama said knock you out! I'm gonna knock you out! Lightweight, middleweight, heavyweight. All terms related to the sport of boxing. The sweet science as it's known. In 1968, Lionel Rose became the first Indigenous Australian to win a world title. That victory over fighting Harada in Tokyo, Japan, made him an instant national hero and an icon among Aboriginal people. A public reception saw a crowd of around 100,000 gather at Melbourne's town hall. Melbourne, the centre of a rejuvenation for boxing in Australia. So where did it all begin? Where did this rich association between Aboriginal people and boxing originate? For non-Indigenous people, it's just a sport. But for Aboriginal people, boxing has shaped, defined and inspired entire communities across multiple generations. At first glance, it appears to be about money and prestige. But beneath the blood, sweat and tears lies a number of social and cultural reasons why Aboriginal people were drawn to the sport. As I'd find out, Aboriginal participation in boxing has an interesting origin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, once again in Sideshow Alley, it's our privilege to bring to you uh, Jimmy Sharman Jr. Hi, James. How do you do, Gordon? Very well, thanks. A long time no see. Jim, where have you been since we've seen you? Well, Gordon, uh, as in usual years, we've been all over Australia, or the main parts of it, and like Father Christmas, we come around once a year. <laughs> For 60 years, Sharman's boxing show was a troupe of nomads, showmen, fighters and entertainers who followed the circuit of agricultural shows. Dubbo... 1950. Now here is uh, Jimmy Sharman, another one of the uh, popular boys that we see here in Dubbo each year. Oh yeah, Dubbo Jimmy Sharman's boxing tent. I certainly went into Sharman's tent to watch fights during the late 50s and with my uncles and, and certainly in the 60s. Professor John Maynard is a leading Aboriginal historian based at the University of Newcastle. Well, I guess it's the movement of the tent, the tents that were going around with the agricultural shows, you know, across the country as well and going into Aboriginal areas and and being spotted as a as a, you know as a tent boxer i mean you could have been picked up by jimmy shamans and and taken along and um, for the ride so to speak but the reality is that opportunity may have taken you onto the big smoke in places like sydney or brisbane and melbourne and under the eye of some you know professional boxing trainers so the opportunities were there and for aboriginal people you know from the time of the establishment of the protection 
and later on the welfare board, and I'm talking about New South Wales, but widely spread across the country, there was denied mobility for our people. There were denied opportunities on every aspect of life. And most of our mob were confined on heavily restricted and um, controlled reserves and missions where every aspect of decisions in your life were taken away from you. But if you were able to get an opportunity to buy some freedom through the boxing ring, well, you know, go for it. What's your understanding of how Aboriginal people were treated in these tents? Was was the pay the same? Were they treated the same? Or There's a really good study, a couple of good studies done by Richard Broom in regards to this. And in his earlier work, he felt that Aboriginal people were being done over and for money and, and certainly being swindled out of opportunities and that sort of stuff. But in his later stuff, he actually said that you know, it was more a work of agency and Aboriginal people were as much playing the game and, and twisting things into their own favour with opportunities. So, you know, it was a bit of to and fro. And the reality is that it did provide opportunities to, to better provide for your family and any opportunity was a good one in regards to that. I'm Richard Broom. I'm an Emeritus Professor at La Trobe University in History. I'm now retired but still an active historian. And uh, when I was a young fellow doing my PhD, it was actually on sectarianism, and I was trawling through the uh, Sydney Morning Herald page after page, year after year, for the early 1900s, and I came across an article which said, boxing match carnival of savagery, and I thought, what was this? And, and the clergymen were complaining about a boxing match that was to be held on Boxing Day in 1908. So I took uh, note, some details of it, and and later on, about a year later, when I'd finished my PhD, I followed it up, and it happened to be the Jack Johnson-Tommy Burns world title fight, which was the first world title match between a a black and a white man, because this uh, title was run out of America, which was a very racial society in the early 1900s, and uh, they refused to let blacks and whites fight. But um, fortunately, an Australian entrepreneur who uh, wanted to make a lot of money uh, offered the white champion, Tommy Burns, £6,000, an enormous amount of money in 1908, to come out and fight Jack Johnson, the black American champion. So it happened, and it was an amazing event. I actually ended up writing about it. And uh, Jack Johnson, of course, the black champion, easily won and was hated by whites across the world for it. So when I started to research Aboriginal history, uh, I got an offer from Alan and Unwin to write a history of Aboriginal-European relations in Australia, which I accepted. But just before that, I made the decision that I really needed to start doing some research in Aboriginal history. And because of my interest in the Jack Johnson-Tommy Burns fight, I thought, well, I knew Aboriginal uh, men had boxed, and often successfully. So... I started a research project that was in about 1978 and I went around interviewing Aboriginal boxers that I could find. And when did tent boxing begin and what was that all about? Well, tent boxing began uh, when agricultural show movement began in the 1860s and 70s where country communities started to hold annual shows to improve animal husbandry, to improve community involvement and they started to be entertainments and they were things like knock em downs and sideshow alley, but also boxing tents emerged where a troop of boxers would come to the show and the local blokes would challenge them. And uh, so they became a regular feature of most country agricultural show days from sort of the 1880s, 1890s. And for instance, Jimmy Sharman, who was one of the most famous tent entrepreneurs, started around about the First World War and his son later took over for him and that that tent went through to the early 1970s when it was closed down. And why was it that um, Aboriginal people participated in these tents? You could win money. It was exciting. The show day was an exciting day. Everyone came to town to see everyone else. The people from out of town were new identities in the place. People wanted to see them. Often they were given exotic names and said to come from exotic places. And they might have a chance of uh, crossing racial boundaries by 
boxing with a, a white bloke in the ring and possibly beating him. In fact, as it developed, probably a third of the tent boxes were Aboriginal. So they travelled with the tents and they found that very attractive. In a period from about the 1930s, late 20s, 1930s, through to 1970s when I was doing my research, there was 15% of Australian champions in boxing were Aboriginal people, Aboriginal men. And uh, at that time, they were less than 2 3% of the population. So they were overrepresented by five times. And that's a very intriguing statistic. So I guess it tells you a bit about more than just sport, doesn't it? It tells you about the social and the cultural, all those reasons why Aboriginal people would have participated in boxing. Exactly, and that's what attracted me to it. My, I guess my initial question was, did boxing help improve the lives of Aboriginal people? Did it break down racial stereotypes? Um, and I think to an extent it did because black champions, you know, people like Dave Sands, who was an empire middleweight champion, Australian champion, he was cheered by, by the public. Uh, they'd see him running through Sydney um, on training runs and they'd hang out at a bus and, you know, good on you, Dave, and whatever. So it, it actually cut across the, the racial categories of the day where you had white people that were actually cheering Aboriginal people because they were so good as a boxer. So how, I guess, if that's the case, did they turn into a profession for Aboriginal fighters? Well, if, if they were good, if they were good um, and they wanted to, they could get an introduction to a trainer down in the big smoke, you know, Sydney or Melbourne, and Jimmy Sharma would say, look, you know, I've got this bloke, he's actually pretty handy with his fists, he'd like to have a go in the ring and I'm happy for him to do that. I've released him from his contract or his contract's finished and so he'd get an introduction to a, to a big city trainer and then he'd, he'd start have a go in a couple of the preliminaries. So, uh, you know, sometimes Aboriginal champions were found in the tents and they made that progression through to the professional ring where the training was fair income, the fights were fair income and the money was even better. One person who knows what it's like to fight in these tents is Tony Mundine. Tony's a Bundjalung man, born in Bayougal on the New South Wales north coast. Yeah, yeah, i tell you the truth. I had a couple of fights in tent boxing because we used to go from Bayougal, where I come from, into Grafton for the Grafton show. And they used to have boxing, uh, tent boxing there. So I was only 14 or 15 years old. If they could knock you out, that you'd earn yourself $10, and if you knock him out for three seconds, five seconds, would give you $3 extra. Which one of the corners are you? We had no money. We had no money. I had to go there and have a couple of... I reckon I had about four or five fights in the tent for, for, for a few dollars. Yeah, it's good. I went all right, man. Then I had myself. And, and uh, I shook him up. He yeah. shook me up, and I shook him up too. <laughs> what, what was the What was the pay like? Uh, I paid a little. I get a couple of dollars, a couple of a couple of pounds in a day. A couple of pounds. You get about two or three pounds, I think. One nine three Regent Street, Redfern. The Tony quickly found a passion for boxing. He began training with a friend at a gym in Redfern, under the eye of famed trainer Ernie McQuillan. He had his first fight in March of 1969. I fought a four-rounder, and I won one point. <laughs> Next fight, two weeks later, I fought a six-rounder. I knocked a guy out in three rounds, and then all my other fights was 10-round, 12-round, 15-round. Never looked back. Tony fought 16 times in his first 12 months as a professional. He took a number of fights overseas. The first in 1973. To get to France, yeah, maybe three, four stops. Not to, I go three, four stops to get to France, and uh, you know, back in back in them days, we used to travel uh, for me, and my my trainer. But uh, well, you know, and every fight I went over to fight in France and fight anywhere in the world, I always spend 
least two or three weeks in the country to to get to get get used to the the weather and then all sorts of stuff. And I'll fight uh, again, like again, good fighters. Yeah, you know, I'll pull in very very big crowd, fifteen and twenty thousand people. You know, I had I think I had I don't know six seven fights there. Hank. Treated as somewhat of an outcast by much of society back home, life was different for him as a boxer. Wherever I fought anywhere in the world, they look at me like, like a king. I'm at a top motel, a 24 hours uh, man guide to look, look after us with a car and driving. Mate, they look at us like, like me, like, like a king. I was, I was just, just uh, amazed that they looked after me when I was over there. Uh, it's Paul Upham, a boxing uh, commentator and journalist for the last 20 years. Okay, Tony Mundine, probably one of our best Australian boxers never to win a world title. He did have one world title fight uh, opportunity against the great Carlos Monzon, the middleweight great in Argentina. That was in 1974, and he lost on stoppage. And I talked to Tony a few years ago about that, and he, he said that they sent in a lot of Argentinian sparring partners and really worked him over and, and, and tried to beat him up before the fight to soften him up. But in saying that, he said that Monzon was one of the all-time greats, and you know he didn't he didn't feel bad losing to someone like Monzon, who was considered up with marvelous Marvin Hagler and, and Bernard Hopkins to be one of the great middleweights of, of all time. Con toda su máquina de golpe, demoliendo a Mundín en este asalto. Ganador Monzon retiene de esta forma el título mundial mediano, décima defensa. Well, Carlos, you know, the same thing, you know. It's one of those things. He's a great fighter and great champion at the time and like a little chocolate boy from Boyego <laughs> in a couple of years' time, few years' time, traveling the world, around the, around the world. Mate, I, I didn't go in the fourth round, mate. I didn't go in the fourth round. But I couldn't finish him. But anyway, you know, uh, he's a great fighter and great champion. That's why he's a champion. Uh, yeah, he had a long, long career. Tony did. Um, at one stage, he, you know, he held the the light heavyweight, cruiserweight, and the heavyweight Australian titles at the same time. He won the Commonwealth titles at middleweight and, and light heavyweight. You know, he was a very, very, very good boxer, very athletically gifted, great power, uh, great speed and stamina. And in latter days today, he would have won world title belts, no doubt about it. After retiring in 1984, Tony bought a gym in Redfern. It was in this gym where he would train his son, Anthony. St George Illawarra rugby league player Anthony Mundine has announced his retirement from rugby league. You know, my goal, my ultimate goal is to be the world champion. This isn't no joke. I really want to make this happen. Three three big fights for me, for Anthony Mundine. The first fight was his first world title fight opportunity against um, Sven Ocke. Right hand from Ocke, Mundine is down here in round number 10. Once again, it was that right he's hand, he's out. Anthony Mundine is cold, he is out, it is all over, and Sven Ocke has knocked Anthony Mundine out here in round number 10. His 12th successful defence, 25 fights, 25 wins, a true champion of the world. The concern for Anthony Mundine... And people forget, as much as Anthony cops criticism for losing... Uh, in the 10th round by knockout, he'd only had 10 fights. He'd, he'd come from rugby league. Um, he had really no amateur career as a boxer, played you know, from the age of 18 to 25, played at the highest level in rugby league, a state of origin. You know, To, to take on Sven Oki uh, after only 10 professional fights and only his second year as a professional boxer, and in, in earlier those rounds, he was really making Sven Oki look silly. Um, he sort of ran out of gas, only because he probably hadn't had the experience of fighting at a very fast pace. But Anthony was fantastic early in that fight. And it was just a cruel shame that he, he lost badly by knockout in 10th round. Three years later, Anthony's moment had arrived. He had earned the chance to face hard-hitting American Antoine Eccles for the WBA Super Middleweight World title. It's the WBA Super Middleweight bout. Anthony Mundine versus Antoine Eccles. Love or hate him, Anthony the Man Mundine. No one gave Anthony a chance. No one outside of Anthony's team. Eccles was considered to be one of the most vicious knockout punches in the world. He'd given Bernard Hopkins, the middleweight world champion, two tremendous battles. Even though he lost, Hopkins said, I never want to fight 
Eccles again because he hits so hard and he's so dangerous. So when the fight was made and after what happened against Fenocchi and losing by knockout, there was nobody who really gave Anthony a chance. You don't think he's fit enough or good enough? No, I just don't think he handled the, the hits. as supposed to be the artist, the, the old uh, American, but um, he smashed. And that night I sat there ringside and watched, you know, close up, and he just totally outboxed Antoine Eccles. He never put himself in danger. And as the rounds went on and Eccles ran out of gas. And he really deservedly won that fight. And I thought that was a fantastic night. And the new And I'll never forget it because Anthony Mundine, you know, he really proved a lot of people wrong in becoming the super middleweight world champion. I was like a big monkey off my back. I said I'd do it. I said I'd do it. The first title that I attempt was against Ochi, so I fell short. And but he came out and said I was the hardest fight of his career. Yeah, yeah. You know that? Ring magazine. Check that article out. Anthony would go on to claim two more world titles. The first in 2007 against Sam Solomon. I wanted to kill him, but I really gave him a beating that night for the second world title. It was like he said to himself, I'm not going to be worried about Sam's fitness. I'm just going to walk forward and knock him out. He's in a lot of trouble. still hasn't recovered. He hasn't recovered. And he knocked him down multiple times at the entertainment centre. And it was, it was probably one of Anthony's most impressive knockout wins because Sam Solomon would go on to have a great career and have great wins after that. In 2009, Anthony won his third and final world title, beating Daniel Gill for the IBO middleweight crown. It's very unheard of. The boxers go down in weight. Every, basically, as you get older, you, you put a bit more weight and you go up in weight classes. Anthony decided that nobody had ever won world titles in reverse order going down in weight, so he was going to do that now. And that was the first step going down to middleweight, and he was very, very impressive. Opening seconds of round two. Daniel Gill fought as an Olympian. And that's probably one of the best, most entertaining fights I ever called live for television. Gill responds with another great left hand. Because it was such a close fight. And I think the first two rounds could have gone either way. And then it was just the whole way, just one round one way, one round the other. It was, it was a really, really good quality fight. The winner and new IBO middleweight champion of the world. probably the sloppiest runner in creation, but uh, uh, I run just to suit myself. If I'm going too fast, I'm getting terrible, I'll slow down. If I'm going too slow, I'm getting terrible, I'll go run a bit faster. I, but we do it non-stop. We, we, we run the full five miles. We don't stop for, for a breather or anything. But um, I, I think the fight has a lot to do with it. Uh, thinking about my opponent, thinking, thinking about what type of fighter he'll be, what sort of fight it would be. It'd be a hard one, an easy fight. Possibly after I've done about two or three miles, I'm getting tired. And uh, just to keep me going, uh, I'll think of those last couple of rounds when the fight's coming up, and I know that the running's going to do me the world of good over those last couple of rounds. Probably, probably running would be the easiest part of my training. Six weeks before a title fight, that goes into running and sweating, sweating your guts out in the gym every night. Uh, the grind when you could be out and enjoying yourself, going to parties, going to dances, 
Mark Ice playing my guitar. Uh, this is the thing that I miss most. But uh, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love the sport. this massive scrapbook of Lionel Rose. I mean, I used to keep every clipping of his fights. And in those days, I used to have a newspaper account of the fights, and it was a sort of like a blow-by-blow account. As a young boy, John Maynard was a huge boxing fan. After Lionel won the title, he actually came to Newcastle and the old store building, which wasn't the old store building then, there was a line out of the bloody store for people to go in and get Lionel to sign his book. And I was one of those. I was 12. And I, um, I was in that queue and I've still got that book and I've still got his signature in it. If you were to ask any Australian boxer to name a fighter who has inspired them, Lionel Rose would be certain to be on their list. The eldest of nine children born and raised at Jackson's Track, an Aboriginal settlement in Victoria, Lionel first put on a pair of boxing gloves when he was 14. Yeah, so Lionel was obviously the first Aboriginal to win a world title and he started off Early in his life, his father taught him to box, and you could see because he was so talented at such a young age. Mate, one of the great fighters ever produced. He was one of the great fighters, I, I reckon myself, ever produced that line of he, He's so, so good, mate, and so combination, and plus the, the speed, and you know. In the 1960s, Aboriginal people still found themselves on the fringes of society. Lionel would prove a trailblazing figure against this oppression capturing the mainstream in a way few others before him have been able to do. To the 19-year-old, he's only the second Australian to win a world boxing title. From Melbourne, the world bantamweight champion and MBE, the Australian of the Year, Lionel Rose. There was a colour bar against us for such a long period of time and certainly in the case of the 60s, you know, Lionel came through at a time of great social and political change and more acceptance, I think, of wider, wider Australia. And, you know, the wide Australia policy was still in until the 70s, I mean, which was largely barring Asian people and black people coming in from overseas. And we knew where we were stuck, I mean, which was in the back blocks. And the crowd in terrific voice. Left and right to the head by Rose. Short right to the body by Rose. And Arata was definitely holding on. Against fighting Harada in Japan, he was only 19 years of age. To go to Japan to become the undisputed Bantamweight world champion at 19. It's hard to understand the significance of that. And Rose is champion of the world. Lionel Rose is champion of the world. And the hand speed and the movement. He just boxed rings around the Japanese world champion fighting Arata. And uh, it was just a very, very impressive win for him to do that over there in other fighters' backyards. And Costa Zoo once said to me, Paul, people underestimate how hard it is to go overseas to another fighter's country and win. Melbourne, the centre of a rejuvenation for boxing in Australia. Ralph Neal reports. This was the scene outside the Melbourne Town Hall when Lionel Rose returned from Tokyo with the world bantamweight crown. Came back to it with a cavalcade through the city to the Town Hall, which was bigger than the Beatles had had, you know, and then was named Australian of the Year. I'll give you an indication of the fame back then when we used to have one world champion for each weight class. In December 68, he went over to Los Angeles to defend his world title at the famous Forum Arena in Los Angeles against the Mexican Chuchu Castillo. A left and a right to the head by Rose. Rose is fighting back very strongly. Castillo scores with a hard right to the jaw. Another hard left and a right to the head. A hard right to the head by Rose. And Castillo hammers a right to the body. And at the time, Elvis was having a movie being filmed at the MGM Studios. And he was a fan of Lionel Rose. So after a training session, Lionel Rose was driven to the MGM studios while Elvis was filming a movie. So there's a famous photo of Lionel Rose meeting Elvis. And at the time, Elvis actually signed a $1 bill for Lionel to take home to his mother because his mother was a huge Elvis fan. But that just showed you the fame and the recognition of boxing world champions back then that Elvis knew who Lionel Rose was and wanted to meet him. I 
I then followed all Lionel's fights against uh, Sakurai in Tokyo, Chichu Castillo in Los Angeles, which uh, when Lionel won that fight erupted into a riot in the ring where all the Mexican supporters were throwing chairs and all sorts of stuff going on. And then the fight against Alan Rudkin in Melbourne, where Lionel completely dominated the first two-thirds of the fight, and it was a miracle that Rudkin stayed on his feet. The mighty fine performance by Rose in round 13 and 14 carried him to the slender victory he took here tonight, and it was his courage which uh, kept him in the battle. Although Rudkin perhaps shaded him, it just wasn't enough to make up the leeway. There wasn't a great deal in it. But Lionel, at this point, was wasting a lot to stay at the Bantamweight. And Rudkin surviving the last probably three rounds, I mean, Lionel really hung on. And, I mean, he won the fight on points, but um, you could see that he weakened dramatically, and that was the incredible amount of wasting that he had to do to get to that Bantamweight um, weight. And I think Jack Rennie really should have taken him up to a featherweight before. And, of course, then he went in against um, Ruben Olivares and was knocked out and lost the title. Again, you know, you see the images of Lionel Rose. I mean, he was, um, the wasting must have made an incredible impact upon him. And not to say that Ruben Olivares was an incredible fighter and regarded as one of the greatest Bantamweights of all time history. When a boy becomes a man, he must do the best he can to live his life and find his childhood dream. A day begins in the ring career of the young man from Burnt Ridge, New South Wales, who started life as but he didn't put it around, Percy Ritchie. But under the more rugged name of Dave Sands, he's punched his way to the middleweight championship of the British Empire and to three Australian titles, heavy, light heavy, middle. Yeah, look, Dave Sands is just another talent, so talented that, and such a tragedy the way his life ended at, at the age of 26. By the age of 26, he had had 110 professional fights it's just unbelievable. 110 professional fights is incredible. Dave Sands was born at Burnt Bridge on the New South Wales Mid-North Coast. Brothers Dave, Clem, George, Alfie and Russell were all successful fighters, notching up over 600 bouts between them. But it was Dave who showed the most promise, and in 1941 he moved to Newcastle to link up with local trainer Tom Maguire. Dave again, is for me a personal hero. I mean, he was a resident in Newcastle and is mostly connected with this place. He trained out of Tom Maguire's gym in Beaumont Street, Hamilton. He lived at Stockton, an outstanding fighter. But he was killed in a truck accident when him and his brothers were out cutting timber at um, Dungog. And he was in line to fight for the world title at that point. And he held um, three Australian titles at the one time at that particular moment. And the tragedy of it is that um, the following year, Bobo Olsen and um, Dick Turpin fought for the vacant world title in Madison Square Garden, New York. Every blow that Olsen threw there landed. Turpin down. Two, three, four, five. And um, Bobo Olsen won the fight on the microphone to the crowd. After that fight, he said, you know, something like this title doesn't really belong to me. It belongs to the Australian Dave Sands. He's the one who should be wearing this belt because Sands, you know, obliterated Olsen in the ring in two fights. And realistically, Olsen wouldn't have lived with Dave Sands, but he was the, the world title holder after Dave was so tragically killed. Dave's 1951 matchup against Carl Bobo Olsen was a landmark moment in American television history.
It was the first boxing match televised live across America, coast to coast in the USA, which is historic in its own right. And for it to be Carl Bobo Olsen against the Aboriginal Australian Dave Sands, it's just amazing to think that that was the first coast to coast live boxing match televised. Just a tragedy at the age of 26. He was taken so early and he, you know, most likely could have become the middleweight champion of the world. I've been up the Sandgate Cemetery. There's a the grave up there of Dave Sands with a beautiful photograph of him uh, in that headstone. And uh, as I said, it was before my time, but my father certainly knew him as a curry jockey here in town. And the Sands boys from my father used to say, used to do their road work on Broadmeadow Racecourse across the road from Maguire's gym. And um, he was apparently a strikingly handsome man. And one of my aunties on the white side of the family said to me that um, Dave Sands was the most stunningly beautiful man I've ever seen. And she said, when he used to walk up Hunter Street, all the girls used to be all giggling and, g'day, Dave, (laughs) as he used to walk by, you know. So um, there's... um, some memorials to him over at Stockton as well. Um, there's a little grandstand at the Oval over there um, with inscription on the local residents in memory of Dave Sands. He used to train on this Oval. There's another one down near the Ferry Wharf. And there was a shadow on the wall in near Market Town, the shopping centre, which was where the old Newcastle Stadium was and where Dave Sands had many fights. And there was a shadow that was put on the wall there. I'm actually just writing some pieces for the City of Sydney on boxing gymnasiums in Sydney at the moment. And there was one Tom Lamming's Golden Gloves boxing gym, which was at Glee Point Road, which is present-day Glee Books, and that was Lamming's um, gym. And Lamming had fought Dave Sands twice in the 40s and been knocked out by him, and he regarded Dave as a good friend. So when Dave used to come to Sydney, he always used to train at... um, Lamming's um, gym in Glee Point Road and you know, the newspaper account said there'd be huge crowds at that uh, boxing gym when Dave Sands was in town and he used to go down to the park, you know, Victoria Park there on Broadway and he'd, you know, work out in the park and they said buses and cars and, you know, used to all pull up and the crowds used to get out just to see, you know, Dave doing some running or some exercising in the parks. Champion Australian boxer Hector Thompson has dedicated his life to winning a world title. Hector Thompson coming out of the corner on the left. You're around the light trunk. He's taller than Thompson. Slightly longer in the reach. Left hook now by Thompson. Catching up with Santos. Santos left hand lead. Hector Thompson de Australia, el retador número uno, con pantalón blanco. Good left then by Hector Thompson. In the 1970s, there were two names in Australian boxing. Tony Mundine and Hector Thompson. Hector passed away recently at the age of 70. Tony remembers his friend well. Hector was a great father. I'm a great father, you know. He was a great guy as as a human being. I I was a pretty good friend with Hector and it's really bad, mate. Bad, bad news. Hector was a great father and a great man and, you know, he's well well liked uh, around Australia and I just want to think that it's we do come and we, we all do go, you know. That's one sad thing about it. Well, Hector Thompson was a very, very good Australian and well-rated lightweight and uh, welterweight. And he had a phenomenal uh, 73 wins in his career, which is, by any standards, a fantastic career at the highest level of boxing. Hector Thompson was born in Kempsey on the New South Wales mid-north coast. He was a member of the infamous Kinchilla Boys' Home until the age of 13. Well, I was brought up in a boys' home, and any opportunity that I tried to have like that it wasn't much. I took the apprenticeship carpeting up, there wasn't much money in it, so I took up sport and that. I used to play league a fair bit. There wasn't any money in that, so I just thought the professional fight game was good money in it. So. Regarded by many as one of our best, He fought for two world titles and in 2005 he was inducted into the Australian Boxing Hall of Fame. He fought in two world title fights and against two of the all-time greats, uh, Roberto Duran, the hands of stone. The fight has been stopped and the winner and new lightweight champion of the world, 21-year-old Roberto Duran of Panama. 
the fight against Roberto Duran, I mean, he held four different world titles in different weight divisions. It was Hector was stopped in the eighth round, but um, Duran always said later, I mean, Duran finished up in hospital um, with ribs broken. I mean, Hector Thompson was a ferocious um, body puncher. I recall it being said that um, one of the men in, in Duran's corner said later that Thompson hit him so hard that Duran couldn't even remember which direction his, his corner was as part of that fight. But he still went on to, um, you know, knock Hector out. It was a, it was a really brutal and uh, toe-to-toe slug match and, um, you know, and Hector was beaten. But um, an incredible performance against one of the all-time greats. He knew that he was in a real fight. Hector Thompson gave uh, Roberto Duran, the great Hall of Famer, probably one of the toughest fights of his career. And those eight rounds, wow, it was just a a fantastic battle. Hector Thompson, he had a really tight defence and he threw these fabulous uppercuts from the inside. He really hurt Roberto Duran. And in fact, in round seven, he probably was one of his best rounds of the fight. Right hand by Thompson. Think about, you know, the Australian Aboriginal boxers. I mean, it's a cavalcade of champions across the many, many decades. And and as I said at the beginning, Hector Thompson was a, a, a personal favourite of mine. I mean, certainly having seen him, and I said, followed him down the streets. I mean, it was a bit like the Pied Piper for me as a young age. I mean, and going to the showground that night into the um, Jimmy Sharman tent, he's left a legacy of, you know, one of the most powerful punches, you know, that um, Australian boxing. I mean, Hector was a, a shy, unassuming um Guy, I mean, he, but he was certainly a um, an inspirational figure, you know, to you know young Aboriginal men, certainly boys and men, and I mean at that particular time, and the community as a whole, and he carried himself with dignity. There remains a common stereotype around many Aboriginal boxers of yesteryear, in the belief that they died broke, penniless, or simply out of the public eye altogether. There would often be tales of racism, mismanagement, and missed opportunity. There's a history of that and, and certainly played up that way, you know. But, you know, you look at even now, I mean, it's changing now, but in the past with since the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, you know, our great rugby league and AFL players, they weren't appearing on TV and in the media until recent times. You know, yeah, white players, they were getting their opportunities and advertising and support and jobs and, and stuff like that. But for us, you know, you could have been a great star, but then you were discarded when your career was over. Mm-hmm. And then you were held up as being, you know, oh, see, you know, Blackfellas are a failure. They, they can't go on. And it's, it's, that was certainly a process. That has changed today and we see a lot more Aboriginal um, men and women, you know, appearing in the media and, and certainly um, there's more opportunities. And I guess we're leading that in many respects. Hold it, hold it, hold it. So why were Aboriginal people drawn to the sport of boxing? And why have they been and continue to be so successful? It was probably the only sport we got a degree of a go. All the other sports, there were colour bars of exclusion. But with boxing, there was more of an open door. And Aboriginal boxers were encouraged into the space because they were good. And I think there was also the drive and desire to provide for your family and your community. And um, they had this instilled energy and uh, fight to get square, if you like, on the wider society. They seem to have a fluidity, ability that others don't. I don't know whether it's cultural or if it's physical, but the way they move in the ring and they seem to have this movement, uh, the ability to, to slip punches, to get out of the way, to spin, go left, go right, to basically box circles around their opponent at their best. And like I said, I'm not sure if that's just an Aboriginal culture or physical thing about what made them great, but it's just their their ability to be able to manoeuvre themselves around the ring 
away from their opponents. I think it's just, just born, born in, in our, our body, you know. I don't know what it is, uh, like the Aborigines kids or Aborigines uh, girls and boys, they all, we've all got the natural talent there of, of in our bodies. And mentally, uh, if, if you want to do it, you go and, you know, you, you, soccer, tennis, basketball, whatever, boxing, you know, football, you know, we've got the gift of a gap of a great sort of a, achievement in life so you can do it if you want to do it. That's Dan Sultan with Hold It Together. Tonight's program was produced by myself, Jay McAllister, and the sound engineer was Simon Branthwaite. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week as we feature the panel discussion 20 Years On, Crossing Bridges for Reconciliation. I think it was a crucial turning point for Australia and I watched the work that Linda did as, uh, in her chairing and stewardship that influenced the corporate sector of this country to take on board the whole concept of reconciliation. We see the culmination of that now through the efforts of so many where we've got reconciliation action plans and you've got the corporate sector now in many senses immersing itself in being in partnership. Uh, with Indigenous Australians. We've still got a long way to go on many fronts, but we are far better now than what we were at the time prior to reconciliation. Minister White, when one looks back at the commentary around the country on the day, uh, a lot of it focused on the Prime Minister's uh, refusal to apologise to the stolen generations. And I wonder what your reflections are now on that moment and to what extent that might have marred the reconciliation process. I think that whole thrust of reconciliation and the bridge walk uh, surpasses that. I've got to know John Howard extremely well uh, over the years since that time. And I know that he would have received advice saying it was a risk. And he was committed um, to wanting to have change. And in discussions I've had with him, he's never really reconciled from the need for that apology to have been given. I think the trouble we have sometimes as um, ministers, and Linda will find this when she becomes a minister, there is always this risk aversion as opposed to sometimes a common sense approach for the betterment of a nation. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Jay McAllister and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.